If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 13. It's also there in your worship guide. John chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. Verse 27, sorry. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that Judas had the money bag. And Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father, we ask that through your spirit, you would open up our hearts and minds so that we might hear and receive from you in this place. Lord, I pray for real heart change. Lord, that you would have your way in our midst. I pray in this moment that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The Apostle John, he will spend the rest of his life trying to work out, trying to comprehend what he has just witnessed that we saw in this text. Uh, these events happen on what we would call Maundy Thursday, the night before Jesus was crucified. And the events that we just looked at left, they left John utterly stunned. He's having a hard time even trying to process what is happening. Now John is likely the youngest of all the disciples. Perhaps he's even a teenager. He's one of Jesus' favorites. He has a place of honor at the Passover feast. He, he's even leaning into Jesus. And Jesus said somebody's going to betray him, and it was John who got to ask who. And Jesus whispered in John's ear, saying, it's, it's Judas. Judas is going to betray him. And when John heard this, it had to go off like, like a bombshell on him, like Judas there's no way it could be Judas. I mean, we all know Judas. Judas is, is faithful. Jesus himself entrusted Judas with the money bag. 
And there they had Matthew, the tax collector. He was good with finances, but Jesus didn't entrust Matthew. Jesus entrusted Judas with this. Faithful Judas. No, it couldn't be Judas. But then John hears Jesus tell Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. In other words, if you're going to do it, do it. Get on with it. And he, he sees Judas get up and, and depart. And, and, and now he's, he's just beginning to process these things. And, and he's putting pieces together. Now all these things are making sense. Why, why Judas objected so much when Mary broke open the alabaster jar of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. Maybe the peculiar absences that, that Judas had had. All these things he's beginning to piece together. And John alone knows why Judas is leaving. The other disciples, they think maybe he's just going to give to the poor. Maybe he's running an errand for Jesus. But John alone knows what is happening. And his head is just spinning as he's trying to process all of this. And, and as Judas leaves the door, he hears Jesus saying, now is the son of man glorified. Which Once again, his head spins. He's like, what are you talking about? There's, there's betrayal. And now Jesus is saying, now he's glorified? This glory we have been waiting for, for three years waiting for, and now at the moment he's being betrayed, he's being glorified. And then Jesus uses this sweet, endearing term, little children. He's never called them this before. But betrayal, glory, and then little children, it's time for me to say goodbye. I'm leaving, and you can't follow me. And John, I'm sure his head is just spinning. His heart is just spinning. And then he hears Jesus say, in the new commandment I give you as I leave, and it's this, love one another. It is not an overstatement to say that for the rest of John's life, he's going to be working out what he just witnessed and heard here. He's going to be replaying this scene over and over in his head. It, we know this not only because he wrote it down years later in this gospel, but when you come to his first epistle, that first letter he wrote, all it is is an explanation of this, this text we just read. That's what 1 John is. By far, the best commentary on the gospel of John is John's first letter. And it was many years later, after chewing and chewing on this, that he decided to write and unpack what just happened on Monday, Thursday. In 1 John, John uses the term little children again. It only occurs here in John 13, and then it occurs seven times in 1 John. It becomes John's favorite term for describing followers of Jesus. Little children. Nowhere else in the Bible do you find the phrase new commandment except for in 1 John. Where over and over again, John is going to unpack what this new commandment is, that we should love one another. Just to give you a small sampling of 1 John, where you see these themes, these themes of someone in our midst betraying us and our call to, to love one another. Hear these words, 1 John 2.10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. 
1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 10, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is just a small sampling of 1 John, of how this new commandment to love one another just permeated every part of John's being. 46 times in that letter, he talks about love. 46 times in such a short letter. So you get the feeling that this, this moment here at the end of this dinner left a deep, deep impression on John for all of his life. As there is betrayal outside, as there is darkness outside, Jesus calls in this inner circle. He says, not among you, love one another, love one another. The backdrop to this command that we should love one another is that Jesus is leaving and his disciples are not going to be able to follow him anymore. And so the question is, how is it now that these people who have been left behind, these disciples, how can they follow Jesus? I mean, up to this point, it was pretty easy to know who followed Jesus and who didn't follow Jesus. Those who followed Jesus literally followed Jesus. They went from him with him from town to town. They would sit at his feet and listen to him teach. They would sit at the table and they would eat with him. They were always present with him. They were identified with Jesus because they were with Jesus. But what happens now? Jesus says he's leaving them so they can't physically follow him anymore. So what are they supposed to do? How are people going to know that they follow Jesus? And what does following Jesus actually look like? This is an especially relevant text to us here in this room because we don't have Jesus physically here. So how will the world know that we are followers of Jesus? And what is following Jesus actually supposed to look like? Jesus tells us in verse 35, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you follow me if you have love for one another. There's a lot to, you can unpack in what Jesus says here. But as I kept reading over this, I was mostly struck by what Jesus does not say here. Jesus does not say that all the people will know that we are his disciples 
by our great acts of faith, by the miracles that we perform, or by the doctrine that we hold, or by our conservative moral values, or by the fact that we gather together every Sunday for worship and for prayer. Jesus doesn't even say they will know that you're my disciples because you profess love to me. He says, you will know, the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It's really astonishing. Jesus is telling his disciples here that their deep, lived-out love for one another will be the greatest evangelistic force, the greatest missionary force that this world has ever seen. There's no greater tool for evangelism than us loving one another. Unfortunately, I don't think that's how most people in the world know that we are Christians. Uh, I once saw a bumper sticker on somebody's car that said, they shall know that we are Christians by our bumper stickers. I was like, that's pretty appropriate. They shall know that we are Christians by our Facebook posts or rants. They shall know that we are Christians by the political parties we align ourselves with. That's what the world thinks. But Jesus says they will know us. They will know you by your love for one another. Now, the apostle Paul, he got this. He understood this. Paul, who had performed great miracles, who, who had really good doctrine. I mean, he did write, he wrote Romans. He understands doctrine. He knows what it means to follow Jesus. But listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, Paul is saying, it's not your spiritual giftedness, nor is it your, your knowledge, nor is it your generosity, nor is it your faith, nor is it your courage or bravery that ultimately matter. What matters is, do you love one another? That's the mark of a Christian. It is, do we love one another? Now, I'll, I will admit as I was reading through this and hearing Jesus' words and Paul's words and thinking that our love for one another is really the greatest missionary force the world will ever see or that love is better than moving mountains. Honestly, I thought, really? I mean, really, Paul, really, Jesus? I think if I were to go outside right now, display a great act of faith, heal a ton of people, all right? I heal everybody who walks down. Uh, the street. I think that that would be a pretty good testimony to Jesus and that I'm following him and that I am his disciple. But Jesus would say no. He would say no. Say even if you were to go outside and you were to command one mountain to completely move and it were to move, that would not display who I am more fully than if you were simply kind and forgiving 
to your brother or sister in Christ. That displays who I am and who you follow. I am the triune God. I am a God who exists in an eternal relationship of love, Father to Son to Spirit. And if you want to best show who I am and who you follow, reflect that. Love one another. Love one another. As I began just thinking through this, I realized there's a depth to the love of, of God and to the love of one another that Jesus is talking about here that I don't understand. Now, how can this all be true? How is it that love for one another can be so powerful? Well, I think we get a hint at this just by knowing who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to his disciples who are a... a very eclectic group, very different people. You had people like Thomas, good old Doubting Thomas, who's always brought out every Easter for us to look at. Uh, so you have Doubting Thomas there who is, who's skeptical, he's cautious, he's always questioning. Then you have Peter, who's bold, brash. He just jumps right into the things. He speaks without thinking. And then you have the two of them together, polar opposites in personality. And Jesus says, love one another. Then you have Simon the Zealot. A zealot was someone who belonged to a political party that was, they were pseudo-terrorist. They absolutely hated the Roman government and they believed that killing any Roman official was justified. Zealots would carry daggers and they would hide them in their cloak and in the crowded streets, they would go up to a Roman official or somebody that worked for Rome and they would stab them in the back and then flee. And they felt fully justified in this. And Simon was not just a zealot, his nickname was Zel the Zealot. This is Simon, who is known as the Zealot. He was so identified with that political party, that became his nickname. And then you have Matthew also a disciple, who was a tax collector who worked for the Roman government. Somebody who hates the Roman government, wishes everybody who worked for him was dead. Somebody who worked for the Roman government puts them together, calls them his disciples, and he says, if you actually love one another, the world will know that you follow me. This is like Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, you know, coming together, giving bro hugs. Like, it's just, you, you, you see that. If that were to happen tomorrow, I guarantee you the whole world would say God had something to do with that. It, it would take a miracle from God for that to happen. That's what we're seeing here. Listen, it's because the people in the church, us in this room, are so different from one another that our love for one another is so powerful. It's what makes the world notice. So Jesus is telling Peter and Thomas to love one another. Simon, the zealot, Matthew, love one another. You have these sons of thunder. I mean, can you imagine just what they brought to the table if you're called sons of thunder? We already know that they asked Jesus, can I be at your right hand and, and he be at your left hand? They already had their mom arguing over who, which one of them got to take this position of power. 
I can only imagine the fighting and the arguments. And Jesus is saying, love one another. Everybody will know you follow me if you can just love one another. Now, confession, I have found that for me, it is often easier for me to love non-Christians than to love Christians. Honestly, there's times that Christians just really tick me off. Um, I don't know if you've found this to be the case or not, uh, but Christians often annoy me. Uh, I'll keep with the political analogy here. Suppose you have an unbelieving neighbor and they put up a political sign voting for some candidate in their front yard. You completely disagree with this. You think the person's an idiot, uh, but you're still going to be kind and loving towards them. Then one of your friends, your church friends, who's a believer, puts up the same sign in their yard, and it just sets you off. Absolutely sets you off. You are so angry at them, and this anger is going to manifest itself in a lot of unhealthy ways. You'll begin gossiping about them, saying, can he believe so-and-so is voting for this person? Gossip. You'll begin seeing everything they do in a negative light. You will never give them the benefit of the doubt. You'll quickly lose patience with them. You will find yourself judging them, judging what they wear, judging where they go, judging their parenting skills, judging the way they dress. Why is this? Why why is loving a fellow brother or sister in Christ sometimes so hard And the reason is this, they're family. They're family. Loving family is hard. Loving enemies is actually easy because you can love them at a distance. But loving your family is hard because of their closeness to you. They are so close to you, you can wash their feet. They're so close to you, you can see their filth and they can see yours. You know, you don't get to choose your family. You don't get to choose your family. You only get to choose whether or not you will love your family. That's your choice. Here, Jesus, hear this. Jesus made us family. He made us family. You didn't get to choose this family. Jesus made us family. You did not choose me. I chose you. Now your only choice is whether you're going to love this family. That choice is yours. Listen, it's hard to love family. All of us have, you know, that Uncle Rico or that Aunt Barbara, you know, the the person that's just so hard to love. I mean, I would go to some of my family reunions and I would just be embarrassed. I'd just be so embarrassed Um, as some of these relatives would come out of the woodwork. I had an Aunt Louise. uh, She was, well, she wasn't sweet. She was just an old thing. I was about to say a sweet old thing. She was just old. She was about four foot eight. Uh, she'd been in the hospital, it seemed like 20 years. I just remember every time I went to church as a kid, I was like, Aunt Louise is in the hospital again. You know, she was always on the prayer list. Uh, she, she came over to our house for, I think, Thanksgiving one time. And uh, I just, I did not like this woman. And she is sitting directly across from me, just her head, because she was only 4'8". It, <laughs> it was just her head. She didn't have any teeth. She was old. And... Uh, she, uh, she passed around her plate. We were eating ham, 
and she had us all cut off the fat of our ham and put it on her plate. And I remember her sitting across from me just slurping it down <laughs> without her teeth. And I had to leave. I just remember I had to leave. I just got up, I just walked out. My parents had, had a talk with me and I just remember they said, she's family. She's family. I wasn't born into this. I mean, I was born into this. I didn't choose this, but she's family. So I don't get to choose my family, but I could choose how to act with my family. I could choose to love my family or not to love my family. Listen, you can have all the right orthodoxy. You can have all the right morals. You can get up and read your Bible and pray every single day. But Jesus clearly says that the mark of following him is if you have love for one another. And what I have found over the years is that Christians love the church in theory, but they don't really love it in practice. They love the whole idea of we're one big family, we're all united together in love. But when it comes to the actual practice, love looks a whole lot like washing somebody's feet. We, even, we can even talk about washing another person's feet and say we love that in theory. We love the person's filth in theory, but in practice, that filth looks like negative words thrown your way. That filth looks like times or feelings have been so hurt by this person. And Jesus says, wash and love. I want to clearly define what love is. And in our last minutes, I want to Look exactly how this command to love one another is a new command. So what is love? Love consists of three elements. There is a sacrifice made, a joy received, and all this is done with the aim of giving life and honor to the other person. All three elements. So there's a sacrifice made, a joy received, all done with the aim of giving life and honor to another person. All three are necessary for love. You take out any one of these and you won't find love. So let's look at a sacrifice made. All love is sacrificial. There will be a cost to loving someone, whether it's a cost of money, a cost of time, a cost of energy, or whether it's a cost of your pride, a cost of giving up your personal honor. So love can look like spending money uh, on somebody, or it can look like washing dishes for somebody if you're tired, or it can look like not dominating a conversation and always bringing it back to yourself. The greater the sacrifice you make, the greater the love that's demonstrated. Next, it's a joy received. Love is not just a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice with joy. Love takes delight in giving these things, giving somebody a gift, giving somebody their time, giving somebody their money, giving somebody their energy, giving somebody their patience, giving somebody their kindness. Love takes a delight in that. And finally, it's all done with the aim of giving life and honor to the other. The goal of love is to bring life and honor to another person. 
Maybe another way of thinking about this is the aim of love is to bring out the fruitfulness in another. The aim of love is to make another person blossom. The aim of love is to glorify another. All three of these things are necessary for there to be true love. You can't just have one. You can't just have two. Love cannot just be sacrifice, for instance. I know so many Christians who operate at this level, which whenever they talk about love, they all, all they talk about is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. But sacrifice by itself is not love. Not at all. This is how sacrifice works in it. You're aiming for something. It's like, I want to aim to bring, bring you life. I want to aim to bring you honor. And if I have to sacrifice joyfully to do so, I will do so. But it's not just sacrifice for sacrifice. <coughs> if you're sacrificing without joy, then you are not bringing honor to another person. You're not giving life to them. Sacrifice can actually be quite selfish. Husbands, if you, um, if you wash the dishes for your wife sometime, and she comes up to you and she says, you know, thank you so much. You didn't have to do that. And you say, I know, I know. I didn't have to. And let me tell you what, it was a sacrifice. It was, it was hard work, but I, but I did it. I didn't enjoy it, but I did it. And the reason I did it is because God told me he said, good husbands do this. Does your wife receive any honor? No, you actually stole all the honor she could have had and you just kept it yourself. I did this because I'm an awesome husband. I'm so obedient. This is why I did this. I made this sacrifice, but it wasn't for her. It was for, for yourself. And you received no joy in it. However, if your response was this, you're welcome, honey. It was my joy to do it. She is honored. Same sacrifice, but now she is honored and you receive joy out of it. My wife's honor comes from the joy in my sacrifice, not just my sacrifice. Love is a sacrifice made out of joy in order to bring life and honor to another. This is the love that the Father has shown us through his son, Jesus. And this is the love that we are to show others. Jesus, who made the ultimate sacrifice in dying on the cross. Jesus, who did so for the joy that was set before him, which is us, his church. And he did it in order that we might have life and honor, in order that we might be glorified. And now we're to show others this love. Now, how is this a new commandment to love one another? Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, the commandment for us to love one another is not really a new commandment. Right about now is typically when people drop out of their Bible reading plan, you know, or usually when they get around Leviticus. If, if you could just get over the hump of halfway through Leviticus, you'll come to Leviticus 19 and you'll read, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And then you'll find many, many other verses all throughout Scripture that command us to love each other. So this really isn't a, a new command here. It's found everywhere. So how is it new? Two ways. First, Jesus adds the phrase, as I have loved you. As I have loved you. So now we know exactly what love looks like. It's no longer just love in theory. We've actually seen it in practice. And love looks like this, being given all power, yet kneeling down, taking up a towel, and washing dirty feet. That's love. The second way is this, and it's found in 1 John 2. I think it's there in your worship guide. Once again, 1 John is the best commentary we have on this section. 1 John 2, verse 6. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now I'll admit it, when I read this, I thought John made it about as clear as mud. Perhaps you... You feel the same way. I mean, he says, I'm not writing you a new commandment. I'm writing you an old one, which is actually a new one. I'm like, what are you talking about? John is saying that it is an old commandment because it's one that we already know. I mean, we just read it in Leviticus 19 and all throughout scripture. Actually, it's not even limited to the Bible. Other religions have commands that we should love one another. It's as old as man itself, loving one another. So that's been said before, but, but it is new. It is new because of verse 8. It's a verse 8. It says, this new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. It's a new command because it is not told to you. It is now put in you. It is now put in you. This commandment to love one another is now inside of us. This is the first commandment that we have under the new covenant, to love one another. The night that Jesus was betrayed, this Monday, Thursday, he was initiating the new covenant. He was breaking bread and saying, this is my body. He was pouring the wine in the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. This is the cup of the new covenant. He just initiates the new covenant and then he gives this command. This is, the, this is the first command of the new covenant and what this means is under the new covenant we actually have the engine in us. We actually have the heart change in us to perform it. We actually can love one another as we are being asked. We can obey it because we are now his children or as John would later say that we are now walking in the light that he has brought to us. It's a new commandment because it's now a new age that we live in. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, has come. A new day 
is dawning. And everywhere there's this light now shining forward. And wherever this light is shining forward, we are given this new power to love. Every time we forgive a brother who has hurt us, this is the light shining forward. Every time we show patience to a sister that exasperates us, this is the light shining forward. Every time we don't take into account a wrong suffered, or we refuse to gossip, or we refuse to lash out in anger, this light shines forward. Every time we freely give our time and our money and our energy to somebody, this is the light shining forward. And every time we get close enough to one another that we can see each other's filth and we don't turn and run away, but are drawn to that person, this is his light shining forward. Listen, now through Jesus, what he's saying here is you have become a child of God and you now have your father's eyes. You have your father's eyes. You resemble him. And your father's eyes shines love. And that, those eyes are now put in you. And where you go, you are going to radiate love. People will recognize when they look you in the eyes and they see that love, they will know who you belong to, that you are my disciple. Pray with me. Jesus, when we love one another, we look like you. So help us to look like you more. Thank you that you have put this word, this command in us and that you are continually changing our hearts so that we might obey it. I pray that we would act like your children. Lord, that we would indeed radiate the love that you have given us to everyone around us and that we would love every person in here, that we would love one another well. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.